Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin. Today's guest is Simeon Burnett of Snowball Effect, a crowdfunding platform and private equity marketplace. We discuss the crowdfunding and equity raising landscape. Snowball Effect tends to work in the post-earnings, post-startup stage of companies, rather than the startup and rewards part of crowdfunding we more often see uh, in New Zealand and Australia. Simeon walks through how Snowball Effect helps connect entrepreneurs to investors and we certainly get into the weeds with their process including uh, the screening, wholesale investors, documentation and the like. Then we finish off about his uh, career in corporate finance in Fonterra before he started Snowball Effect. Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. Welcome Simeon. Thanks for uh, doing this conversation about crowd crowdfunding with me. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, you're welcome. What's the um, what are the different types of, of crowdfunding? Yeah, look, I think broadly speaking, there's there's probably three. Uh, there's, there's equity, so that's where you're actually buying shares in a company. There's debt, uh, so harmony would would probably be the most visible example of that, where you're you're lending through an intermediary to individuals or, or companies, um, whatever the case may be. And then there's rewards, which is the most well-known one would be a Kickstarter where, in essence, you're providing working capital funding for uh, a company or individual, whatever the case may be, to build an early version of a product. Uh, so get some cash to do that, and then you are sort of a, an early adopter or an early user of that product. I heard it all started uh, way back with some music uh, recording artist wanting to get money for their IP and they asked for donations and, and I think that was in America and eventually that something similar to it led to Indiegogo and the like. Is, is that your understanding? Yes, yeah, so I guess it, it's sort of been the evolution of uh, of people being able to, in the, in the case of rewards base, being able to donate to something and using an online platform or channel to be able to do that, which is obviously a lot more efficient and far wider reaching than someone sort of literally going door to door or standing on a street corner uh, trying to get some donations or something. Uh, and then it sort of evolved from there where sort of in the UK would be one of the, the I guess, primary examples of uh, off the back of the GFC where they sort of said, look, how do we make it more efficient for for people to, to borrow or raise capital? Uh, for businesses, uh, given that a lot of the traditional channels had effectively closed up shop um, for for a period of time, so that's kind of where it spawned from. And then New Zealand was one of the the early adopters from a regulatory perspective. Uh, so the the uh, the change um, or the implementation of FMCA in, in 2013, 2014. Uh, so for us, it was the back end of, of 2014 uh, where we got. A license to be able to to do what we do now. I read somewhere that in the US they sort of started crowdfunding with what we'd call wholesale investors. Yes, uh, and, and then I think they saw what the rest of the world was doing and thought, "Golly, we need to extend this to retail investors." Is, is yeah, so they had what they call the Jobs Act in the US, yeah. uh, and. I guess unsurprisingly, that that was reasonably complex and took a while to um, for them to 
to push through their process. Uh, it certainly wasn't as straightforward as what's happened here in, in New Zealand and, and probably the UK as well. Um, so that's right, it sort of started off with kind of a, a wholesale or eligible element to it um, and then has, has progressed from there. So, you know, every jurisdiction is different. You know, Australia is different again from, from the US and from New Zealand and from the UK. So um, they're different in terms of some will have caps on investors, some will have caps or limits on companies and how much they can raise from retail investors uh, and then others you know, the UK probably the best example where there's, you know, tax incentives for people that uh, invest through what they call an EIS registered company. Um, so again, it's sort of different by jurisdiction. So um, a lot of the stuff isn't particularly transferable, although there's clearly some elements that that um, work across geography and jurisdiction. I've seen that, that in Australia, not with crowdfunding, but with early stage venture capital, they, they give a 10% um, tax Credit pass through to the to the investors. What what are they doing in in the in the UK for a for a tax incentive for crowdfunding? Oh, it's not particularly crowdfunding focused. The tax yeah. incentive is just sort of um, you're probably talking to the wrong person about it. But yeah, no. uh, broadly speaking, they have what they call an EIS system in the UK, which is if you're investing in sort of early stage, growth stage businesses. Um, then there's a tax incentive for you to do that. So as a company that's seeking funding, you want to be EIS registered so that your investors can get some form of, of um, rebate or offset against their uh, their tax. So um, that's broadly speaking um, what's done. Sort of similar-ish in some ways, I think, in Aussie, just in terms of uh, they have the whole um, self-management of, of uh, superannuation over there. And again, there's, there's an incentive for people to invest in, in younger companies because um, of the ability for them to offset that against um, some of their tax costs. So New Zealand's different. We don't have that. Um, probably would be nice if we did, but the, the, uh, the government is looking at other ways and means of sort of fostering more activity within early to, to growth stage company sector. To, to go down that rabbit hole a little bit further, if we would have something, would you see it being similar to Australia and the UK or a bit different? Or Look, I don't really know. I haven't given yeah. it much thought. Sure. Uh, I think it'd be good to have something. I think, uh, you know, New Zealand or New Zealanders, we, we don't have a, a great history of, of investing into companies. Um, I think something where... I think anything where people take... Just a starting point is KiwiSaver. A starting point would be if get people taking more interest, being more proactive, um, being more engaged with their KiwiSavers, um, that would be a good thing, and thinking about how they can do that um, would also be a positive thing. Um, so, look, I think, you know, there's some, some good blueprints out there. Um, the UK and Australia aren't the only places, so um, it'd be nice to think that sort of in the medium term the, the government is looking at some of those, those options. In New Zealand, of course, we've taken a direct investment approach through the uh, the NZ uh, VIF and uh, and the Callahan Fund. I, I wonder whether the government hands-on approach is better or worse than providing some sort of tax incentive directly to private investors. Yeah, I guess my view would be that the, the benefit is that you're, you know, NZ VIF is pretty passive and it's obviously got some capital that it deploys in the manner that it sees fit. Uh, I think 
the benefit of having people directly doing things is one, you know, getting people more engaged with a sector or an asset class that perhaps they haven't been so engaged with before. Mm. Two, uh, if they do have capital they're wanting to deploy in that space, um, you know, it's an incentive for them to get it working in, in that space and potentially get involved with companies where they can add some skills and, and expertise, whether it's a governance level or it's more of an active investor level. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, you know, potentially a tool to, to get individuals and, and people, which at the end of the day are the things that build companies, <laughs> sort of mm. involved within the sector um, as opposed to sort of a relatively passive fund. Um, so that, that would be kind of my my perspective on it broadly. Yeah. There is that dilemma of protecting the retail investor by ensuring that they only invest through certain types of securities or KiwiSaver mm. versus allowing a more active investor community by allowing them to self-manage their superannuation to use your description of what they're doing in Australia. Yeah, well, I think, I think there's certainly limits on what you can do with that as a new sort of can't. Um, you can't unload on a on a, uh, a small private business with your entire superannuation fund, so I don't think it's sort of as, as, as simple or, or as silly perhaps as that. Um, but yeah, I think it's just sort of you know having a, a sensible portion depending on who the person is, um, which is available for that aspect of self management, whether it's private company, whether it's public company, whether it's other asset uh, classes um, or financial products. It's just having people more engaged with the, what should be sort of a fairly um, significant and fairly important part of, of their their portfolio and, and their investment. Let's move on to uh, the different types of the equity crowdfunding uh, in terms of, I mean, over to you, I had in mind the, the retail versus wholesale mm-hmm. investor types and, and what they they look like for a start, but also keeping it as confidential as possible versus versus public, uh, and then the regulatory side to it. Yes, could you talk that through the different types? Yeah, I look, I, it's pretty simple, really. Um, certainly, New Zealanders. So, so broadly speaking, with equity crowdfunding regulations, a company can raise up to two million dollars uh, from. Investors, whether they be wholesale or retail, um, within a twelve-month window. So that that license, that equity crowdfunding license, that relates just to to retail investors. So a company could say, "Hey, we want to raise five million. Um, two of that could come from retail. The, the other three million would would need to be wholesale." Um, so you know, we've done you know multiple. Um, use cases of, of that sort of thing where you've had what we'd call a joint offer. So from a regulatory perspective, it's a joint offer. Um, as I say, $2 million available for retail, the, the balance available to wholesale. Um, so with, within wholesale, uh, there's there's a, basically 11 criteria. So there's sort of a, I sort of think of like an umbrella, sort of a wholesale umbrella, and underneath that umbrella, there's, there's 11 criteria. One is sort of an eligible investor. Uh, so that is basically people that have got some sort of experience in investing and understand the risks of, of investing in younger or, or private companies. And that would be signed off by a lawyer, accountant, financial advisor or, or someone like that. Um, and that lasts for two years. Um, the other 10 criteria, broadly speaking, are based on wealth and experience. 
Um, so if you can tick one of those boxes or get someone to sign you off as an eligible investor, you are sort of inverted commas a, a wholesale investor. Um, and, you know, New Zealand's got pretty good regulation compared to other jurisdictions around that. A lot of that wholesale investor elements are self-certification. Um, so I mentioned eligible investor, which isn't. You need to get someone to sign you off. But the rest of them, um, broadly speaking, are, are self-certification. You don't need to get an accountant to say, yes, I have more than X amount of, of net assets or something like that. And you need to certify every time you make an investment. Um, so that's that's kind of the, a very broad brush overview of kind of the regulatory environment in New Zealand. Uh, the way our platform has been set up is so that it can operate under both regulatory regimes. Um, so whether you need to self-certify as a wholesale investor or whether you're coming through, in essence, under an equity crowdfunding license, which means you, you can just come in and invest, um, then then we can work with both, and, and, we, and we often do. So most people probably don't really care about all this sort of stuff. They just either want to invest or, or they don't. But to give a little bit of sort of regulatory context to it, that's kind of the, the environment that you operate in. There are some other kind of exemptions as well, but that's probably not something that you want to dive into. Yes, yes. The, um, you mentioned $2 million for the company and for the investor. How much can a retail investor invest in crowdfunding in, a, in any particular year? Uh, they can invest as little or as much as they want. Right. If, sort of by by chance, I guess, if they invested more than 750000 they would actually be a wholesale investor. So if you you're automatically qualify as a wholesale investor. Right. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, there's no restrictions on the investor. It's very clear that uh, it's clearly a, a risky asset class and there's no active market for the shares if you want to sell them. I think the other thing is as well that you generally have a, a pretty low ticket size or, or entry level. So in some circumstances, it might be $500 or $1,000, the minimum investment size. Uh, so for you know a retail investor, they can sort of put together a, a portfolio for you know maybe five or 10 grand over a, a couple of years. Um, so they get some sort of early stage or, or growth stage diversification <laughs> within sort of that, that asset class. I also see that you can uh, go to market and have a, a pre-approval of uh, potential investors seeing any company information versus the, the normal public approach where mm. you, you see the pro- prospectus uh, straight away. Uh, yes. So you, you've, you have a, an ability to assist uh, private companies, I guess, especially that uh, don't want competitors seeing their information uh, or indeed customers. Yeah, that's right. So I guess the way we've really wanted to design and, and build what we're doing is that uh, there's a number of different solutions available for companies wanting to raise capital. Um, so the idea is to provide them with options. Um, there's different regulatory frameworks through which we can do that. But absolutely, you know, there's, there's companies that don't want to um, put all that information out there. And you do need to provide a, a reasonably decent level of, of information and answer questions in a public forum because it is a, a public offer. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's the opportunity to meet with founders and do due diligence over and above what's there on the website but a lot of people will make an investment decision based on the information that is there so you know it can't it can't be two or three slides that you just sort of pop up and and away you go so there's a quite a a decent level of information there quite high levels of disclosure and that doesn't work for all companies and and that's completely fine Uh, so what we do 
we're fairly we take a, a company through a process which is the same for every company. Uh, it's basically you know, who ends up seeing that that opportunity. Is it just people that uh, maybe meet a certain sort of threshold? So, for example, some companies will say, "Hey, we don't want anyone investing less than two hundred and fifty k, or something like that." Um, just after larger, probably more experienced investors, um, and we've got I think around about probably one point one and a half. I was going to say one point seven, but um, I'd say one and a half thousand wholesale investors um, that have gone through a, a process of certification. Um, we broadly understand what sort of industries they like to invest in, what size checks they'll typically write. Do they want to be involved with some sort of mentor or you know even more formally on the board? Um, so we'll put an opportunity in front of them, um, get their thoughts on it, uh, and sort of take that feedback and and um, work with the company. Some of it may be around um, strategy, just in terms of not having clarity on on particular aspects of what their company wants to do. But ultimately, you know, we're looking for those people to write checks, um, and that helps set the term for the offer uh, and. In some circumstances, the company will won't go any further than that, as in the round will be filled with those people if that's what they're after. Others would like to have a, a public element to it, um, and they tend to be, I'd say, probably more consumer facing, or they've got a, an interesting story that they think will resonate publicly. Um, so we'll work with the company to get, I'd say, sort of up to 70 percent of their round done privately, and then allow. We'll put it up on the platform um, into the wider database for people to come in and invest alongside those that have have already had a good look at it and committed their cash. Um, the reason we do that is twofold. One is to uh, de-risk it from the company's perspective, so you're not sort of putting it up there and just hoping that people show up and, and invest. Um, but you know, sort of, you've taken it through a number of sets of eyes, um, so that things that need to be rectified and, and tidied up. Are done in a, in a private environment rather than a public environment. Right. Um, so that's that's the first thing, and the second thing really is just for us, just to um, you know, obviously people putting money in is, is good validation that the the company um, you know is interesting at least to some people, and and the terms are fair again at least to some people, um, and making sure that there's enough interest on on terms that we think we'll be able to get the offer done. Um, so you're sort of looking for those more experienced people to give you that feedback and, and put some decent money in um, before taking it forward. And if, and if we don't, um, then you know it's, it's probably not something that that we'd want to take forward. Um, we've got a, a particularly high success rate for the the offers that we host. Um, I don't think we've had one sort of fail in inverted commas or not reach their funding target. Yeah. Probably three, maybe even longer than that, three years now. Um, so, you know, that's sort of been a process that's evolved over time and we've sort of figured out the best way to approach things. Sort of mirrors an IPO process in some ways, doesn't it? And that it's very similar. It's yep. out to the institutional investors and say, what will you pay? You know, are you interested? And, and then work out what the day one um, offering share price should be. And yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, sort of you kind of have the, you kind of have the investment bank and the, and the brokering house sort of all in one in some ways. You sort of providing both functions and yeah. taking both roles yeah in terms of due diligence you know if it was one major buyer they'd, they'd get into the books they'd, they'd send in an accounting firm and uh, perhaps a, a, a lawyer and, and check everything out mm. 
with with crowdfunding, how, how do you do the due diligence? What's the process there? Do... Yeah, so I guess it's probably worth sort of again from reflecting on that. I'm going to say two phases where you sort of, for us at least, you sort of got that private wholesale phase, call it that, and then you kind of got the public phase. So certainly with the private wholesale, uh, we'll have effectively a data room that people can access and meet with the relevant people in the company they're considering investing in and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, if they're writing a decent enough check, then they'll, they'll probably take the, the shareholders agreement and subscription agreement and get in front of their lawyers and all that sort of thing. So that certainly goes on. In the public environment, generally we will get people come in and say, hey, look, this looks really interesting. Um, I'm interested to get some more information on X, Y, and Z. I want to meet with the, with the team, with the CEO. Um, there's some stuff I want to do. So they can do that. Um, they probably won't change the terms of the offer. It's sort of by that stage, it's kind of take it or leave it. Right. Um, but they will certainly do the, the due diligence that they think is necessary for whatever it is that they're putting into the company. And the due diligence can probably be something to do with the data room. Many of the documents that are in the data room are probably available to, to the retail investor. I guess the wholesale investor gets his accounting team to look at what's in the data room and if they feel like there should be something more, they would make that request. Yeah, typically, and that's kind of part of the, part of that process beforehand where they're sort of going through a process and some of the stuff that maybe they ask for, we should go, yeah, that, that should be contained in the offer. Um, and that will be part of the offer that ends up being public if it gets there. So um, that's why it's good to do all that stuff in a, in a private environment rather than a, mm. a public one, which is, you know, it certainly takes longer to, to go through that process, but I think it's a far better result for for the company uh, and hopefully a far better result, or a high chance of a good result, I should say, for, for investors long term. Mm. Mm. That's a good process. Uh, let's talk a bit more about the process. So we've sort of seen that from a investor point of view, from a business point of view that wants to raise some equity. I guess there are three different types. You tell me, but startup, high growth, so later stage, um, and more mature, and then perhaps there's distressed. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Do those different types of businesses and the way that you want to describe them? How does the process go for 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 them, or is it the same pretty much across? Yeah, probably the same. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I'm speaking about snowball effect here, I'm not sort of wearing any kind of industry hat, but sure. um, I think where we see ourselves is, is very much in kind of the growth stage. Uh, certainly our investors, broadly speaking, they would prefer to invest at that stage rather than sort of an angel or a seed stage. Uh, so they, they would prefer to write a bigger check and pay more at a later stage rather than take on that really early stage risk. And if I look at New Zealand, I think there's, you know, there's plenty of angel groups and um, capital washing around for that super early stage stuff. I think we'll see some of the VCs that are, are coming into New Zealand now or have you know, been in New Zealand for a couple of years. Uh, they're generally prepared to write some reasonable checks at that early stage if it meets their, their mandate and their criteria. Um, so I think there's plenty of cash washing around for that sort of thing. Um, I think where the sort of with a gap in the market, certainly from I think companies connecting with investors, is that that kind of growth stage. Um, by, by growth, do you mean pre-earnings or post-earnings? Certainly, certainly post-earnings. Post-earnings, yeah. right? Yeah. So 
again, speaking kind of very generally here, but you know, sort of one to two million of revenue plus. Right. Um, so they've sort of they've got a product or a service. They've kind of got those green shoots that are coming through. There's some you know good customer stories, uh, and it's like, okay, well, can this thing really push on? Um, and how how big can it be? Uh, rather than will this thing actually find any traction in the market? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that that early traction sort of peters out and, and withers away, um, but at least there's some sort of there's some validation if you want to call it that. So, so in New Zealand, we've got for a the life cycle of a of a company. It's not quite right, but you, you fam, friends and family, uh, angel investors, uh, a gap where there are a small number of VC firms in New Zealand, perhaps a, a lot more over the next five or ten years, uh, and then there are people would say at that stage they wouldn't say IPO because you, you need to be what hundred two hundred million dollars of market cap to, to be an IPO. So there's a, there's another gap there. There's a VC gap, and then there's a gap where they're below. Well, no, private equity comes That's in. That's right. So, that, you know, private equity is, uh, has grown significantly in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this, this is a global thing, but you've seen a lot less listings because companies have had that, that availability of, of cash um, once they've sort of got to that stage. Uh, and they don't, if they need to, to go through the listing process. Now, obviously, private equity wants an exit at some point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, if you sort of to, to generalise globally, yeah, the companies have been staying private for longer. Yes. Uh, and there's been a lot of private equity capital from offshore washing around in New Zealand to, to support those companies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I look at some of the companies that, that we've raised for, you know, maybe three, four years' time, private equity would sort of be the natural place for them. Mm. And so for minority investors that have, that have come in, that's probably an opportunity for them to, to get bought out. Um, some of them may choose to go down the listing path. Some of them might end up in trade sales. So mm. they've got all those options available to them. But I think the benefit of, of IPOs is that it is something that, the board has got some kind of control over. Um, so with a trade sale or private equity, obviously there's another party there that you need to see eye to eye on terms and they need to be interested and all that sort of thing, whereas a, a board can control uh, sort of going to an IPO a bit more um, than, than sort of meeting of the minds with, a, with another investor or buyer. We talked before about how you were calling yourself a private equity uh, funder rather than a crowd funder. Yes. You know, and I see the background now. It's, it's, you're in that part of the market where sometimes people talk about private equity being both private equity firms and venture capital firms. Yes. And you're sort of around there, aren't you? Maybe in between the two and, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of see it as, you know, there's, there's private equity and you kind of have a, a perspective on what private equity is and the types of companies that they'll invest in. Uh, I was sort of thinking more broadly than that in terms of equity that's private. As right. in these companies are private companies and you're investing in them and they will, they will span a range of, um, of stages. If you're going to say sort of, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do some earlier stage stuff, but we'll do some, some stuff that, you know, we'll raise capital for companies that are doing 15, 20 million of revenue as well. So there's a fairly broad sort of array or, or spectrum of companies there. So we've just sort of termed it private equity to kind of, uh, I guess, acknowledge that they are 
private companies rather than literally being private equity stage companies, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you don't take equity stakes. You're, you're simply a intermediary or a marketplace of, of capital, a private equity firm, of course. That's right. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have a, a fund or something like that yeah. that sort of sits alongside and, and makes an investment and then opens it up for, for others to invest alongside that fund or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the process, so the, the, the company comes to you, you help them gather information, jump in here when I get this wrong, you um, help them gather information and put it into some format, whatever That's right. that report is called, show it to a selected group of uh, investors or uh, some form of investment committee perhaps even. Typically it would go out to that you know some segment of our wholesale investors right so we'd say okay what kind of industry is this uh, is this company in and the software business okay who's interested in software yeah. uh, and to have a short list and then get into dialogue with them uh, and we'd normally get together a kind of a short document before you you have a longer document in the right. format of an information right. memorandum generally we kind of find that companies if we can work with them and get a short document in place in, in reasonably good time that bodes well for, for a longer document um, in some circumstances, you just don't need the longer document, the, the short one, if it's going to, uh, you know, a small group of, of larger investors are going to get in and really yes. understand the nuts and bolts anyway. Yeah. Um, sort of ha- but having gone through that short document process, it really just fleshes out what is this company here to do with the cash. Um, if you have to write a longer one, it's just that case of it's easier to write a longer document than a shorter document. You can just keep on talking. Um, so the short one is useful for just really fleshing out where they're at and if they're at a point where if we put them in front of investors, uh, then they're going to be in a good position to, to raise that cash. So your wholesale, your, your screen said, yes, we're, we think this is good. And then you get them to write a, a, a longer information memorandum, I guess? Yeah, oftentimes we'll write it for them. Right. Yeah, so yeah. we'll just take on that process. Uh, Normally, it's just easier for us to sit down and write it. Uh, obviously, they'll have a fair amount of input. We want the IM to sound like them. It is ultimately their words yes. um, and the directors of their company that this is their words. But, I mean, you, you see it all the time. I think kind of typically, um, not always the case, but typically kind of BAU is the enemy of capital raising, as in people just get swamped doing what they're doing and mm. oh, I haven't had time to start on that IM yet and that sort of thing. So yes. we find if we just grab grab that bull by the horns and just get on with it, um, freeze them up. Uh, and also for us, it just gets us closer to the company, yeah. making sure that we really understand it. Um, and I guess ultimately about feeling comfortable putting it in front of you, your top investors and saying, are we, are we happy putting this company there? It doesn't mean it's going to be a runaway success or anything, but at that point in time, are you comfortable with it? And they are. And so then you go to market. And how, how do you go to market exactly? What are the... What's the documentation called? What's the process called? And follow. Yeah, yeah. So assuming this, I was sort of going to the public. So it was sort of you're, you're after the full suite of, of documents. You'd have an information memorandum that would have built, been built up of that process that we've just been talking about. Um, then you've got a shareholders agreement or constitution. So that is just it is it is what it is really. So it's an agreement between the shareholders and, and the company on on key matters and describes how things will be dealt with. Uh, then you've got a subscription agreement as well. So the subscription agreement, I guess, is a little bit like a sale and purchase agreement. The, the investors are coming on board. They're, they're buying shares at a, at a particular price. Uh, describes how those shares are going to be held. Will they be held directly or in a nominee? So on and so forth. So they're, they're kind of the three key documents that you're looking for. 
And so two of them, the, the subscription agreement and shareholders agreement, uh, provided by the lawyers. And so we'll work with them on that. And then obviously the IM is something we'll work with the company on. In terms of the investors investing together, is that sometimes the preference by the business to have a, a investment company set up which everyone invests into and yes. then that investment company holds the shares in the, in the, in the, in the business? Do you sometimes yep. do that? Yeah, it would be what we see probably the majority of the time now. Right. Yeah. Uh, reasons for that are, I guess from the company's side, it just gives them a nice clean cap table. Yes. Um, it also means that for any corporate actions that they can just push those to the nominee so typically snowball effect or snowball nominees would would manage the nominee so that means we're just kind of like a post box between the the company and and the investors that are in Uh, so we would distribute that on behalf of the company collect the votes which is you can just do through electronic voting and and all that sort of thing Uh, so that's sort of an additional service that we provide so it's just kind of that that corporate actions I call it um, that a company doesn't have to worry about from the investor side, I think there's, there's benefits as well, uh, particularly for you know minorities where you might have you know a whole bunch of smaller investors that own 15% of the company, rather than being kind of a, a disparate group on the cap table. Um, you have them sort of as a collective voice through the nominee. Um, also means that sort of uh, they are able to retain their voting rights as well. Um, so they all have voting shares, and that. That uh, nominee just sort of had a, if you like, a single vote, um, which are cast on behalf of those investors. So, yeah, there's benefits, I think, on both sides in a nominee. It sounds to me like there's two shareholder agreements almost. One shareholder agreement with the company that's selling the equity, and another shareholder agreement with the the, the investment nominee, the, the nominee company. Um, Not quite. So they, they have what's called a, a deep poll uh, between the, uh, the nominee and the investors. So that's a, it's a fairly simple document. It's just basically saying that we will act on your instructions and, and that sort of thing. Right. So it's quite different from a shareholders agreement, which is you kind of have rights within that right. shareholders agreement. Right. Whereas for in Australia, they call it be a trustee. So we're not an active nominee. We, Snowball Effect isn't sitting on the board and representing the nominee shareholders. As I said before, just a post box that kind of is just passing through corporate actions and taking instruction from those shareholders within that nominee and passing them back to the company. I can I can imagine a business owner going, I can understand one or two large shareholders wanting to muck around in my business, <laughs> but uh, a thousand retail investors doesn't suit me at all. Mm. I guess that's the way you handle it. They They are taken out of the equation, although they have a limited voting right because they have limited shares. Yes. They, they still have a say, so they're relatively happy. And the business owner knows that they can't have too large a voice on the, in the boardroom table. Yeah, so what you'd be looking for there is, as a smaller shareholder, is going, who's an independent on the board? Um, does it have any independence? You know, who's in effect representing me as a, as a passive shareholder? So that's part of the role of an independent is to to sit there and, and hold the executives to, to task. There may also be sort of a larger um, shareholder director there, um, but depending on, on various things, they, they may well be more interested in their own interests, which may be different from uh, the interests of, of minorities as well. Um, so that's where the independent comes into play. 
Going back to to the the, the script, what percentage of businesses successfully raise capital in the industry on average? <laughs> you, I think you said was it X number out of seven hundred and fifty you 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 choose to fund, of which will pretty much get funded. Yes. So, I'm just sort of thinking what the stats are. I haven't looked at them for a while, but yeah. we would normally kind of go, oh, there's probably 5% or something like that. Right. That we go, of all the companies that we've spoken to or approached us, whatever the case may be, there's probably something like 5% that we go, actually, yeah, there's worthwhile taking you to the next phase yeah. and engaging on a, in a process. Yeah. Um, typically, the ones that do go well and we do work with have come in from some sort of referral somewhere whether it be a company that's raised capital before and sort of say hey here's a we really like these guys it's a good company whatever the case may be uh, might be a service provider in the market um, that sort of somehow validates the people behind it yeah. uh, right. and then you're sort of going okay so let's, let's have a conversation and, and go from there but it's, it's probably something like 5% I think it's interesting isn't it from no matter what perspective crowdfunding, venture capital, private equity, all these different types of investing groups, so to speak, I know crowdfunding isn't, it's about, you know, one to five percent of of the opportunities they see, they, they, they choose to invest or choose to take to their um, take to market, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I wonder what the um, the why that's so common. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of companies that Potentially, are really good companies, um, but they're just they're just not at a point where you can really engage with them properly and say put you in front of an investor, and you know the chances are high that the investor is going to say yes. Um, most of the time, for us, it's just just way too early stage. You get people with ideas and someone working in a garage on something, yeah. which is which is awesome, uh, but it's just not something that we've really set out to work with so you know they're better to be able to try and just get that product into into market and get some people paying for it and and then uh, try and raise some capital off the back of that yeah do you know what it's like for other crowdfunding companies and maybe not in New Zealand but have you heard any figures in terms of those who the percentage of companies that try to raise um I used to know what the answer was to that, but I haven't really paid any attention to it for a long time. Uh, So no, I don't. Look, you know, I think there's different models for different platforms in different countries. So some some will be far more liberal in terms of, hey, uh, get it up there and and let kind of the investor base or all the the wider public decide kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm not sure what kind of the strike rate is. It's not not a model that we've gone after, um, but you know there certainly are models like that around the world where they just sort of try and churn them through, and maybe half of them raise the cash, and um, not sure what happens to the other half. And the reward based, especially if it's a um, it's a um, donation for a worthy cause, in effect, uh, it almost doesn't matter. It's give it a bash. It's it's worth the 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 try for for the worthy party, I guess. Yeah, um, like I guess a um, a. Um, give a little type company uh, or platform mm. they'll obviously have their standards I think around what you can and can't try to get donations in for but yeah it's more the onus is on the person trying to raise the funds really to say hey we're on give a little or whatever the platform is and can you please donate 
you know, there'll be some kind of cross pollination of of uh, of donation. I'm sure, as in you you show up for one and see another one and donate to that as well. But yeah, look, it's, it's, to be honest, it's not a not a part of the industry I'm I'm particularly familiar with. So sure, sure, you yeah, don't have strong views in terms of the uh, the debt raising side. Thinking about due diligence now, I and mean, there's only so much due diligence you would do as a as a equity crowd funder. Yep, and it would be for the uh, for the investors to formally do that. I assume. Mm. In terms of the debt crowd funders, yes, oh, they must do some form of due diligence. You'd think. Yeah, look, I mean, debt's something that we've looked at. Still think it's interesting. Probably not in, uh, at least at this stage, not in. I'm going to say sort of an equity crowdfunding where you're sort of putting it out to there to everyone, but I think sort of structured debt opportunities, mm-hmm. probably more f- for a wholesale investor, mm-hmm. uh, where they're putting some debt in alongside equity. Uh, can be the same investor, can be two different investors that are one's taking a an equity position, another another a debt position. Uh, that that's kind of interesting. We've spoken to a number of, of providers that you know probably done this kind of thing for for fifteen years plus. Um, they always say like making the decision to lend that money, uh, you have to get really close to the people uh, to consistently earn a decent ticket off it. So yeah, I'm not sure quite how well it would work sort of on a on a platform which is going out there um, yeah. you know it's, it's a bit a bit different because you don't want to be sort of taking equity risk for debt returns which is which is the risk yeah. so yeah we'll, we'll work through that uh, but there's some interesting opportunities I think in the debt space just not sure quite what form it takes yet sure so so in terms of uh, fraud in crowdfunding I understand there's been very little fraud seen in any crowdfunding platform all around the world. Why do you think that is? Look, it would be, uh, I think, you know, clearly a very public way for, for someone to put themselves out there if, if they did have a, a murky background. And, you know, that stuff tends to come to the, the front pretty quickly. You know, you've got, you know, potentially thousands of people doing some form of due diligence, whether it's just giving it a casual look or, or, or looking more closely at the opportunity. Uh, so, you know, being able to, to be a, a serial fraudster and be able to get away in a public environment is probably the, the exact opposite of what you'd be trying to do. So even sort of fraud aside, you know, that is one of the benefits of, of a public offer, as in you do get a lot of people doing some form of due diligence and asking questions that you may not otherwise ask. Yes. Um, so that is that is something that you need to be well prepared to answer. Um, look, I think, you know, within New Zealand already there's been stuff as in companies that have raised capital through equity crowdfunding and, and failed. You know, they've gone to liquidation or just wound things up, um, which is exactly what you'd expect to happen. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, they're all. That's all. Always been a case of them giving it a, a good go, and just not getting there. Uh, so it hasn't been fraudulent, um, you know, siphoning of cash off to some entity offshore or something like that. Um, because yeah, it would be a very public way to do that sort of thing, and you've, you've potentially got a fairly large shareholder base that will make a bit of noise about it. And, and technically, they haven't made misleading statements. It's just 
I assume, at very risk of making a forecast about a, a product in a market and, and the ability to, to compete versus competitors. It's a forecast which is naturally um, a difficult thing to do. That's right. Yeah, look, it's, it's you know, you set out with the best of intentions, but things change and things don't go to plan, and two years later the business can look very different. It doesn't have to be two years either, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just business, really. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, if people don't want to take that kind of risk and stick to bonds and leave your money in the, in the bank, that would, be, that would be my recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Though that was a bit risky during the GFC as well. <laughs> I, um, I'll finish off here um, by asking a couple of questions. One is about the secondary market that you're, th- I don't think you're calling it a secondary market now, but a technology solution. And then to finish off talking uh, a bit about yourself. So firstly, tell, tell me about this, this idea around a technology solution for, for a secondary market. Yeah, so what we've built, uh, <coughs> working with a handful of different companies on it, but what we've built is a technology solution which allows companies to uh, facilitate the trading issues um, themselves. So effectively they would license the technology and outsource the administration to us. So we, Snowball Effect doesn't have a market per se. The market that we provide the companies is a, is a white-labeled market um, so that allows sort of a centralised place for shareholders to, to trade those shares, for them to get right. uh, a suite of information which is consistent across shareholders um, and having transparency around who's coming to market, are there any insiders trading. Um, so it's just a, it's a window in a, in a 12-month period, um, or maybe a couple of windows, sort of up to the company how regularly it wants to do it. Um, where that you kind of condense that supply and demand that, that builds up within a cap table and allow a, a window for those shares to be traded. The company may choose to introduce some new people to that opportunity. Um, but it just allows for some liquidity, but doesn't mean that a company has to have continuous disclosures throughout the full year um, like they would if they were listed. They certainly have continuous disclosure over the, the window, so it might be a seven-day window, 10-day window, something like that. So it's quite a narrow time frame, uh, and we'll, as in Snowball Effect, you know, we'll be taking care of all the AML, um, updating the registers, so on and so forth. So they're kind of outsourcing the back end to Snowball Effect, um, but hosting the the secondary uh, or the trading window themselves. One of those major risks is having a large number of investors on your on your cap table, and they're unable to exit the the, the, the company. So. Providing a secondary market seems to be a, well, the technology behind a secondary market seems to be a good idea to me. Yeah, look, it's, it's kind of formalising a lot of stuff that happens already. Uh, you sort of see sort of the accountant or the CFO with a spreadsheet out, you know, sort of buying and selling shares might be a window, uh, might be sort of done as, as and when it's needed. Uh, I think the problem always is just sort of lack of information mm-hmm. uh, and people getting different information and making decisions based on that so the idea behind this is you've got a window the clear start date clear stop date uh, and it just allows everyone to sort of come together the company presents some information everyone's getting that information and and shares are traded sort of on an equal basis thanks Simon tell me how did you get into Snowball Effect what was the journey that led you to this to founding the, the company yep yeah, so back around to Snowball Effect, uh, sort of pre, pre my time here and pre-founding the company with, with the other co-founders, uh, was at Fonterra, spent nine years there, 
uh, through a number of different parts of the business, so kind of broadly corporate finance, um, portfolio man- management, so sort of we call commodity risk and trading, so managing Fonterra's price risk uh, through options and, and futures. Uh, then a bit of stuff with with offshore farming, so some of the farms or geographies that Fonterra were looking at potentially setting up farms in. So I did quite a bit of work there, so that was probably four years. So I think, you know, sort of fast forward through to founding Snowball Effect, really it was just sort of looking at the capital markets in New Zealand and, and sort of knowing there was an opportunity there to make them a lot more relevant to people. Uh, you know, we have a, a tiny proportion of our companies listed. Uh, we, we are a nation of, of private business, um, but there's very little access to those private businesses for investors. Um, there's sort of, a, I think, a good uh, or, a, or a wealth of sort of uh, stuff happening at the angel end, you know, a number of different angel groups, sort of informal channels or formal channels. Um, but, you know, there's other parts of the market as well. Um, so that, that was sort of our starting point, and I guess we've kind of just evolved from there. Uh, and, you know, we're sort of obviously, you know, providing different forms of solutions that we've talked through for companies wanting to raise capital, for investors wanting to invest, uh, but also some of the, the services that we're building now around uh, share registry, uh, sort of portfolio management for, for private assets for investors. We talked about secondary market technology. Uh, so sort of starting to, to, to broaden what we do. Uh, and, you know, we kind of always just saw the, the equity crowdfunding regulatory change or, or the introduction of it as sort of a toe on the door uh, and a foot in the market to sort of get you going and then you kind of grow and evolve from there. So uh, that's, that's sort of uh, my background in, in brief. Yeah. Um, but, you know, pretty pretty excited around what we're, we're doing, the team that we've got in place and, and the opportunities for us within within the New Zealand market and, and even offshore as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Very interesting. No problem. Thank you. All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time.